Okay, we're back. And Kara, just two weeks, first AA meeting. And where are we going from here? <laughs> well, um, I'd love to tell you about um, the, the job that really made me into um, the, the great counselor um, that I am today and working with people in addiction. And that all started with an invitation to go to an open house um, and believe it or not, this was Bill's old therapist who told him about the open house and he knew I was a, a counselor and, um, that I might want to go check out this open house. And so when I, um, showed up that day, I kind of fell in love with the place. And I remember finding the director of the program and saying, um, can I get a job here? Like out of nowhere, she had no idea who I was. And, you know, she was super busy. She's hosting this big open house and she kind of brushed me off and just said, send me your resume. Like I'm really busy. And, um, I went home from that open house and I sent her my resume and she got back to me and she said, um, we, you know, we just started and we already have the, the therapist that we need, but we do need a meditation teacher. And I, um, had been teaching yoga and meditation. So she was like, you want to lead our meditation group? And I said, absolutely. I was just trying to get my foot in the door. And so she did want to set up an interview with me and I was about a month sober and I went in for this interview and I remember the first question being something like, so tell me about yourself. And, um, in my, you know, complete insanity is what it felt at the moment. The first thing that I spit out was, well, I'm a month sober and immediately I was like, no, why would I say that in an interview? Why would that be the first thing that I say about myself? Um, you know, I'm doing the like stupid, stupid, stupid thing. And I just sort of, you know, I froze um, after saying that because I'm just thinking, oh gosh, how do I come back from that? How do I go back to, you know, my education and my experience and all of these, you know, skills that I have. And, um, you know, believe it or not, I was, I was shocked by the response. And that was, um, oh, really? Um, I'm eight years sober myself. And, um, and that's great. And I was like, what? This is actually acceptable. And, and she also just offered to help me in any way. And, and, and I ended up getting um, the job, of course. So I remember leaving that day and so many of my preconceptions about what it meant to be sober um, were completely shaken down by that interview. Um, and this comes back to the whole destigmatizing sobriety and destigmatizing addiction. Um, in the fact that I was able to share in a job interview something that was so vulnerable and what I thought was so embarrassing and so shameful and for it to be accepted um, by the interviewer um, as not only like something that's totally fine for this job and that it's something that, you know, I would get support in, but also that it would be an asset to me in the job. And, you know, I certainly discovered that later. Um, but yeah, I started teaching a meditation group uh, mindfulness group at this company. And it grew from there. I had a lot of different roles in that company, um, starting with the meditation teacher and then developing a therapeutic summer camp for teens with substance abuse and mental health issues. And then um, running a ton of experiential groups, adventure therapy, eventually becoming um, a supervisor and program director and really getting to decide um, you know, what treatment looked like for these teenagers that were struggling. Um, 
and yeah. Don't, um, don't forget to talk about the therapeutic chickens. Oh yeah, I also developed a therapeutic chicken program, um, and that was really awesome. And you know, it was really helpful for the kids in our program to just have a, a project that they could work on and. Um, so is this an inpatient program for kids? It was a um, partial hospitalization program. So the kids did not stay overnight, but they came every day, Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. to sometimes 9 p.m. Um, and, and these uh, were kids with addiction? Yeah, substance abuse and mental health. So we were about 50-50. In my experience, one thing that I've learned is that that 50% that came in as purely substance abuse, the reality was that they were suffering with a lot of mental health issues as well. And the substance abuse was just a symptom. I'm finding that out at 58 years old. So mm -hmm. um, I'm glad that you can teach kids this to help them out of it. So where are you at all this time, Bill W? <laughs> um, where am I at? Going to meetings? Uh, riding my bike. Are you guys like excited talking to each other while you're, um, while all this is unfolding? Yeah, it's, it's a really exciting and terrifying time all in the same. Um, we, Kira moved into Westchester at this point and she had been like looking for a house or an apartment for a while. And the only apartment she found was like literally right behind my apartment. So we, we were neighbors and dating at that point. So that was really an interesting um, step in sobriety was, you know, we, we, we weren't living together yet, but we lived right next to each other, like a hundred feet from each other, which was, it was cool. Um, for me, especially because I, all my relationships, most of them had really been shallow, I guess, in the past, because there was so much addiction, you know, with the drugs and alcohol, but also like the porn addiction that, that really morphed me into someone that didn't understand what an actual relationship should be. So, you know, there was just a lot of sexualizing women and not actually treating women like a, a person. So throughout my years, like I was terrified of, and I had no idea about how to actually like live with someone. So when Kira and I started getting closer and closer, um, you know, I knew the time was coming where we were going to move in together. And this was a, a good step for me to, to be closer to her, but not, you know, I could still get my space. Um, so that was, that was good. And I say that, but when like, I think about it, I still spent 90% of my time in her apartment. Why I paid for rent in my apartment, just a little bit down the road from hers. So um, yeah, it was an exciting time. It really was. It was, it was a whole new world, just uncovering things every day, um, getting involved in the community. We, we kind of talked briefly about the therapeutic chickens that 
she had it her work and this was something that she developed as a kind of a dream and sort of a I'm going to say a joke but it wasn't like a joke because that's what she wanted to do she wanted to build a chicken coop at her work and she kind of like threw it at her boss in the in the group that she worked with and they were like yeah that sounds great go go do it go build a chicken coop and we she had like somebody else all lined up to to build this chicken coop but at the last minute that person backed out so I have a background in construction and it just came down to like my dad and myself and Kira, we, we built this chicken coop and. And we also enlisted local friends in recovery to help us build it. So I think that part was really special. So the, the idea was initially designed to be a experiential project for the kids in the camp. And in which it very much was a part of that, but the heavy construction could not be done by the, the kids in the camp that I was running. So um, I needed help and I got Bill and his dad to help me with um, blueprinting and design. And then when it came down to setting up electric, we had a friend in recovery who's an electrician. When it came to just needing people to do some heavy lifting, we had a bunch of people in recovery that we called up and it was just amazing that this project was built by people in recovery. And then of course the kids in the camp came in and they did the, uh, you know, the minor um, construction, um, building a ladder for the chickens and painting and priming and, um, you know, eventually actually taking care of the chickens themselves. But yeah, this, this project was built completely out of people in recovery needing some service to do. Wow. This is just so cool. And then how long are you guys into your recovery when all this? Yeah, a year or two, I'm guessing. Because the the chicken coop actually took a fair amount of time to build it. It was not a small chicken coop. It's not like you're going to go to Not if it has electricity. (laughs) No, no. This thing was like at the front, it was 10 feet high. It was like 12 to 15 feet long. Oh, it's friggin' uh, condos for chickens. Is what yeah. Oh, and this thing was huge. It had like this whole enclosed back run. Eventually, we ended up building. It was crazy. I mean, it was like a $7,000 chicken coop. When you guys are going, you're about a year and a half into sobriety. Mm-hmm. Are you able to like, at this time, look back and see how your addiction has consumed you before and you weren't living? And now, I mean, you're in your community giving back your lives are like totally different from where they were when you would just like bike together and stuff. But now you're really giving back. Did you notice that? Oh yeah. And we were, um, so we were still doing our bike rides, but we were biking to meetings and we were finding meetings that were farther and farther away just so that we could bike to them. And then we started to make friends with other people who rode their bikes because let's face it, a lot of people in recovery, don't have a license for various reasons and they ride bikes. So we started to become friends with all those people who rode bikes. And I started a ride to recovery group and we would meet together um, every week at a certain time. And we would ride 10 to 15 miles. And then we would end up at a meeting together. And it was just awesome. And we, that was when we really first started to combine the things that we've always loved and the things that were our passions and our hobbies and interests with recovery life. 
So, which brings us kind of in a way to you guys found out about Sobertown through my wife, right? Yeah. Yeah, we did. We were, um, I was in a, a, a group trying to, in a Facebook group, you know, giving back to the community in there and trying to help people who are sober and who aren't happy. You know, that happens a lot where you get sober and then you have no idea what to do with your yourself. And we, we have a business where that is what we are helping people do is we're helping them transition from drugs and alcohol as their, their hobby per se, their life into finding out what it is that they want to do, like who they actually want to become as a, as a person, you know, like regardless of sobriety or not, like who you want to become, what do you want to do? How do you want people to see you? What do you want to do on the weekends? You know, what makes you happy? What are your goals? What are your dreams? And, and that's how I, I came upon the podcast uh, through your wife was me posting in some groups, talking to some people about, you know, different things that they could do, different ways that they could help themselves look at themselves and figure out what direction they want to go. And your wife said, Hey, uh, I got this husband named Drifter and he does this podcast and, you know, your story sounds cool because the post was about how my, how I was as an addict, you know, kind of my, my hero's journey as they call it from addiction to us here and I hiking 2,200 miles from Georgia to Maine on the Appalachian Trail. And then once we finished that, we hopped right on our bicycles and rode from Bar Harbor, Maine to San Diego, California. My and wife came in. She's like, oh my gosh, this guy, Bill, he just, he just hiked the Appalachian Trail and then biked across America. I'm like, no kidding. And oh yeah, and he's sober too, you know? Yeah. And I guess she didn't really know about you, Kira, right? And I'm I'm like, that's really cool. And she's like, well, he wants to tell his story. And I'm like, well, that's great. Let's get a hold of him and give him, you know, get a hold of me through the Sobertown Podcast Gmail account. Then I read your story. So let's get to this part because I think it's really cool. What brought you guys first? You decided to walk the Appalachian Trail, right? Yeah, so Kira and I, in our sobriety, we started, we, it was really hard at first to do the things that we always used to do because those things always included drugs and alcohol. So an example would be, and this kind of leads into it, you know, we go on a bike ride, but you stop for a break on a 50 mile bike ride, you know, you stop at 20 miles. Well, normal people like sit down, eat lunch and take a drink. Well, we would find like a nice shady spot where there aren't people and we would smoke a bowl. Like that's how our life was in addiction. Probably because we'd be riding to a brewery to get drunk and that's how it was. So in recovery, that doing those same things that we used to love were really, really difficult. So as, as the years went on, we started more and more riding again and going on hikes again because in Pennsylvania where we live we're about an hour from any section of the Appalachian Trail there's like 300 miles it kind of cuts the state on a diagonal 
so we started hiking the Appalachian Trail on the weekends. You know, we'd go out and do like 15 miles and come back home. And it was it was hard for us because the the long car rides there, it was like, well, we'd be smoking drugs in the car ride. And, you know, it was just it was this transition for us. And eventually uh, on Christmas, I guess, Pierre, what year was that? Um, probably would have been 2018. So we were yes. about two years sober and we went hiking on Christmas day. And I think part of the conversation led to where it always went, which was, wouldn't it be cool one day to hike the entire Appalachian trail or like one day we're going to hike the whole Appalachian trail. But for some reason that day we had reached a threshold of making those statements towards each other. And it was like, no, we only have one life to live. Um, addiction has taught us that life can end at any moment and that we've gotten lucky to make it this far. And we need to start taking control of our dreams and the things that we want to do. And we've been pretty successful in that for two years. I mean, so many opportunities have been coming to us in sobriety that, um, you know, we had no idea were, were gifts waiting for us until we were sober. And on this day, Christmas, um, we decided that we were going to take whatever step was first to make that dream of hiking the Appalachian trail a reality. And we literally went home and I just remember getting on the computer and started to Google. And I think the first thing to figure out was when we would do it. And um, I found out that typically people start in the winter, late winter, spring, you know, March, April, and finish around October. And since it was Christmas at the time, there was no way that we could plan, prepare, save, train, to go that spring. So we, we set a date for March, 2020. And at that point it was like, okay, well, what's the next step? You know, what kind of training do we need? What kind of gear, how much money do we need to save? Um, you know, how much notice do I need to give to work before I can take off for six months? And we just made it happen. So I read Bill that you had a someday bucket and so that's where everything turned into, let's do this now, pretty much, right? Yeah, Kira and I both have like our someday, our dream bucket, and it, it was always full. That bucket just, it just kept getting more full and more full. It was basically overflowing with things to do. And in active addiction, that's all I would do. I would just fill it up. Like, oh man, this thing is awesome. I'm going to go do it. But then... There was an example where I said I was going to go do something and then I never did it. I never even made a plan. I never started. It was just, it was an empty, empty threat or an empty dream, I guess. And Kira and I both had the same dream for growing up from childhood to, to hike the Appalachian Trail. So yeah, it was just, it was time, you know, we've been through so much in recovery and it was just, it was time to to do something with our lives that we always wanted to do because you only got one life, life is short. And this is just what, what we wanted to do. We wanted to change our lives and see what was on the other side. And in recovery, you can find these moments too. And mm -hmm. you plan, I mean, so that hike, it's 2,200 miles I read, right? And it's, yeah. it took you six months. Yeah, five and, five and a half months, yeah started on March, March 3rd in Georgia. We got a plane from Philadelphia down to Atlanta. And then we got hit, 
got on a train and then we walked from the train station to an REI and then somebody picked us up and they drove us to the, the start of the trail on March, March 3rd, March 4th. And we were, we were in the airports and, you know, you'd see some people wearing masks and we were like, wow, this is, why are people wearing masks? This is not necessary because COVID wasn't even, it was barely a thing in the beginning of March, 2020. So we got on the trail and that was it. Our lives were packed up. Our, our apartment that we lived in, our house that we lived in, our lease was up. So we put everything we had in one of those storage pods. So all of our belongings were in a storage pod tucked away somewhere and everything we had for the next six months was in our backpacks. Wow. As COVID was beginning. Yeah, a yes. week before our hike was when everything started closing down. That first week we had our cell phones off, you know, airplane mode. We weren't really sure about like how much battery use we could have. And we really just wanted to disconnect. I mean, that's part of what the hike was all about. And so we weren't checking the news, checking messages for that first week. And then our first resupply in a town off the trail, um, turn on the phone, turn on the news. And we were like, what is happening? everything was closing down. The company that I'd worked for had closed and they were trying to switch to virtual. Um, you know, my mom and my sister are both in medical care. And so they were talking about what that was like. And, you know, wow, it was really dumped on us um, really fast. And um, a lot of people left the trail um, to go home. But since our home was the greater Philadelphia area, it was a pretty dangerous place in early COVID. Um, we spent a few days to deliberate whether or not we should go home or not. And we decided that since we don't have a place to go back to leaving, taking public transportation, and then trying to find an apartment in the midst of a quarantine was not the best decision. And we decided to keep going. And, you know, we were isolated in the woods and the mountains anyway. So it worked out for us. That's definitely social distancing. <laughs> oh, for sure. Oh, <laughs> and we, the there, were, there were days we didn't see another person. So. Yeah. So six months out there, I'm sure there's just a numerable amount of adventures that you had out there too, yeah. where somebody came on, somebody, and they had beer, were setting up a campsite and had their beer and stuff. Yeah, yeah, that was, um, you know, the, the trail teaches you a lot about expectations and judgments. So within like the first week and a half, you know, like you, you always know, or you always hear, I guess, if you're kind of connected to the Appalachian Trail that there's, there's like a couple crowds. There's, well, there is a crowd that's the party crowd and all they do is drink and do drugs and have a really good time. Um, and we, we weren't a part of that, which was really different for us. And from the beginning, you, you could see where those, those parties were, where the people were drinking, but I remember specifically when we walked out of Hot Springs, North Carolina, we got to our, our campsite and we set up, we were kind of there early and nobody was really set up. There's like maybe a few people there so far. And this one individual, he set up his tent next to us and all I hear is clanging of bottles. And I'm like, what is that noise? We're like 15 miles from a road or anything and go outside the tent, see what's up. He's got a case of Corona. He, he hiked out a case of Corona. 
And I just remember thinking how that would have been us. Like we would have loaded up in the town on the beers that we could find because as an addict, I loved drinking all the fancy beers from all the different local breweries and all the different towns. So like that would have been me. I would have been, I would have had a backpack full of liquid and it wouldn't have been to hydrate. It would have been to get drunk. And seeing him was, was really, it made me very happy that we weren't being controlled by that need to get drunk. And because that would suck, you know, a case of Corona, even a 12 pack Corona, that's got to weigh six or seven pounds. And I don't want to carry six or seven pounds on my back unless I have to. Right. You have to plan what you're going to be putting on your back to carry it uh, from one town to the next, where, wherever you're going to resupply basically. Right. Yeah. And then you got to carry those empty beer bottles out with you too. So they just don't go away. You have to bring them <laughs> yeah. to a trash can. <laughs> So, you know, that was really interesting, like seeing that person and I was very grateful to be able to reflect on him as we were as sober people, but the expectation or the judgment, I guess, was like, wow, this person is is definitely a, a drunk. They probably got drinking problems and, you know, you pass that judgment on people, at least I was. And, you know, judgments are dangerous things because you you could be missing out on someone great just because you think you know them. And as it turns out, after, you know, thousands of miles with being near this person, we actually were like, we became really good friends with them. And sure, like him and his friends, they like to drink and all, but like, that was just who they were. That was the part of life they were in at that time during the trail. And that was fine. They never bothered us. Like they were chill. They were fun. They were great hikers. They were great friends. And I always remember like those moments with them, even when they were drinking, like whatever, that was just who they were. You know, that's a big part too, because a lot, there's a lot of uh, individuals afraid to, going to social settings where there's alcohol involved and here you guys are on the Appalachian trail. You're, you're sober and it was okay that somebody was over there doing their own thing and you didn't have to participate. You can continue to, to do your own thing. I think that's just badass, and that hopefully it, some other people can learn from that. Yeah. It, it's, it's kind of a beautiful thing because you get a look at them having fun, whether or not they're like an addict, they have, they have a problem or whatever, you get to look at them and they're having fun. And I, I'm just grateful to be able to like interact with them as long as they're you know, not belligerent. If they're belligerent, you, you just walk away because nobody wants to be around that type of person, but they're funny. People are funny, whether they're drunk or not. Like, and it's, they're just people. That's what it comes down to. You're right. And Dan, that's an opportunity also for those of us in recovery to be, and I've, we've talked a lot about this, Elaine and this miss brought it up about being a lighthouse because mm -hmm. there could be somebody that's further on in their addiction where it's an issue and they're seeing you two sober mm -hmm. doing this Appalachian trail. And they're like, wow, how are they doing? Because you guys didn't even know that it was possible to do things sober. And then somebody else gets to see you guys. Um, sober through this so you guys get all the way to the end of the Appalachian Trail 
And what did you decide to do then? Well, it happened like, I don't know, probably like halfway through the Appalachian Trail or the AT as it's known. We, we, we like to go big or go home, hence our, our addictions and drinking all the beers and all that good stuff. But uh, we were like, well, what can make this crazier? What can make this trip even better? And we decided to empty out our, our biggest dreams on our bucket list. And we decided to, when we were done the Appalachian Trail, we were going to ride our bikes from Bar Harbor, Maine. The Appalachian Trail ends in Maine and Bar Harbor's in Maine. You know, they're probably a couple hundred miles away from each other. But we're going to ride our bikes from Maine all the way to San Diego, California when we finished. Yeah, coast to coast was always in the bucket list. And um, something about all of the confidence that we had gained from hiking the Appalachian Trail with a combination of is the world ending because of COVID right. uh, towards the end. Yeah. Towards the end of that trip, we were like, you know what? We really need to like, let's pick something else out of the someday bucket and do it now. Um, you know, like it, it felt right. It felt like it was very thrilling as an idea for a new adventure at the end of that whole thing. And yeah, we decided to go for it and it was super awesome. Well, <laughs> Let's take a break. Can you believe another half hour has already burned through? And then let's get to that part of biking across America from friggin' Maine to San Diego. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. <laughs> we'll be right back. 